Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by John Fallon, CEO of Pearson, the multinational publishing and education company and former owner of the Financial Times. Before joining Pearson as Director of Communications in 1997, John held senior public policy and communications roles in UK local government, as well as being Director of Corporate Affairs of PowerGen PLC, the energy company now known as E.ON. John, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, John, you started your career, did you not, as a researcher for John Prescott, is that right? Uh, Well, I actually started my career a little bit before that. My very first paid professional job was uh, working in local government up in Gateshead in the northeast of England, which I worked for about three and a half years, which was actually fantastic training in many ways for what I would do later in my life. Uh, A lot of working with elected politicians and policymakers, uh dealing a lot with local journalism you know back in those days the northeast was very healthily served by good daily and local newspapers the northern echo, TV, northern echo the evening journal the evening chronicle rather and, and the like uh and then i went and worked for john back as you say in, in early two, in early 1988 so a long time ago now did you always want to be in, in politics then what was the, what was the rationale what at the beginning of your career what was the ambition i think i uh, having sort of reluctantly conceded that i wasn't going to be a professional footballer uh i wanted to i wanted to sort of you know the things that really interested me at the time were politics and newspapers journalism and so trying to make a living or career at where those two things met was something that I found really interesting in what I wanted to do and I was fortunate enough to be able to do it. So why local government then? Why, why was that the start? Because that was, you know, I'd been active in student politics, I've been president of my students union, I was involved in the National Union students for a year or two and frankly I needed a job. And they were, Gates said, were looking for somebody who had some, you know, it was a relatively junior role, and they were looking for someone who had at least some initial political experience, had actually done some summer work working for Harriet Harman. Uh, Not many people in the world who've worked for both Harriet Harman and John Prescott, an interesting uh, combination there. Uh, And so I think that was probably what got me the job. How did you end up working for John then? Was it an advert or was it a Uh, a contact? No, I mean, I'd been... I I was a student up in Hull. Uh, I'd got to know John. Uh, John actually came up to a couple of events up in the... Gates said, and I got to know him a little better. And then when the guy who was doing the job before me moved on... John asked me to come and have a chat with him, and um, and we went from there. Did you enjoy working at Westminster? Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, it was not in those days the most sort of, you know, prestigious of roles. These were very different times. Uh, what year was, was this? This was pre-1997, when everything was great. This was, uh, this was just after, what, the 87 election, so we oh, wow. were, you know, it was when uh, Margaret Thatcher were in her absolute pomp and prime, uh, Neil Kinnock had just, you know, was obviously by then leader of the Labour Party, had lost the first general election that he lost. Um, and we all expected to win 92, didn't we? Yeah, well, I think we thought... I I went to work for John in the expectation that if Labour won the 92 election, I'd go into government and, and work as an advisor or whatever. But as you say, uh, life turned out very differently. Did your next move come then after the defeat then? Did you look for something in 92? What came next? Well, I actually spent some time... After working for John, I did work, spend some time still working in local governments. I worked up in the West Midlands, helping them to 
sort of promote and get funding and regulatory and planning approvals for a light rail transit system and generally sort of promoting public transport. And then after the 92 election, I decided it was time. You know, I was 30, had a young family. I thought it was time to do something different but still made use of my skills and experience. Uh, and I was intrigued to go and work in a private, what I consider a private company, profit-making organisation. So I went to work for the recently privatised PowerGen, which was really, really interesting time. So how lefty were you at that point? Did you view it as selling out to join the capitalist masses or did you think it's time to, to get a proper job? Or what, what was your mentality uh, like at the time? Uh, well, there's an interesting story there because actually I, uh, I was working through some uh, headhunters in London who specialised in uh, public policy, government relations type roles. I was interviewed by the then head of government relations at Powergen, who was really keen for me to meet his boss, who put me off. The meeting kept getting cancelled uh, and postponed and eventually he just refused to see me. So I nice. wrote him this letter saying why he was making a fundamentally wrong decision. And I can already was, tell this is the kind of letter he framed. Was, if he was refusing to see me because, you know, he thought he wanted somebody who was more, you know, sympathetic to the then Conservative government, he was wrong and here was the following reasons why he should see me. I he- I heard nothing for another six weeks and then out of the blue I got a call one day saying could I come and see him and I went to see him and we got on famously and they offered me the job I thought afterwards he'd seen me because he you know the brilliance of my letter was such that he was just overwhelmed by the logic I realized afterwards he was just hopeless at admin and bureaucracy and having not replied to the letter for six weeks he was so embarrassed that he, he felt thought obligated. he felt obligated to really <laughs> see me but you know such is the way sometimes uh things in life turn out so how were your first few years then working it was power gem wasn't yeah, it? yeah I absolutely loved it I mean what was interesting was they were a you know they were had for many years been a publicly owned nationalised company they'd been carved out of a much larger organisation uh, they were people who'd been sort of freed by privatisation to behave in a, a much more commercially sort of entrepreneurial way and they were very much the the small player that had been set up to challenge the much bigger national power so there was a sort of buccaneering can do let's go on and make things happen spirit and they were also quite you know frankly a little bit naive about how politics and the press worked and I absolutely loved it and much to my surprise the part of it that I found myself enjoying most was the financial PR and the investor relations side of it and I actually found that I got really interested in the the business side of it. Did you kind of just evolve into those kinds of roles and responsibilities or was there a deliberate choice to then focus on it? Because you were Director of Corporate Affairs, weren't you? There had been a regulatory... Uh, so I, was, I joined, so actually, my, uh, the, guy who'd, so I, the guy who'd hired me uh, then left about three years later and I took on his job. So it was quite a... I had quite a, a sort of meteoric rise within, within PowerGen in, in, in that sense... After the Labour won the 1997 election, I had lots of offers from different places to go and work. I thought that I'd 
been at Paragen five years. I didn't see myself been there for, for life. And actually, of all the options that were open to me, Pearson was the one that appealed most. Uh, new CEO, young, relatively young. Uh, the first lady of the FTSE, as Marjorie was then known, Texan to boot. She's a it's quite an unusual story. And frankly, it was... Of all the offers, it was the one that I was going to have least contact with the then incoming Labour government. And I'd taken the view that if I wasn't going to be in government, I didn't want to make a living out of the interfacing with it. I didn't want to make a living around it. I wanted to do something that was completely different and separate. And that was really important to me. And was one of the things that attracted you to Pearson, as you've said, is is the fact that it was going to be the, the least transactional with the Labour government of the day, the least adversarial? Was that... Was that yeah, but also it was, uh, you know, I mean, it was a really sort of interesting company, you know, founded in the 1840s, started as a small construction company in, I think it's actually in Wakefield of all places. Uh, by the end of the 19th century, it was one of the largest engineering companies in the world, built the railroad tunnels under the eastern Hudson River. Incredible history, isn't it, when you read about and by, it? And by then, you know, even then still owned, uh, you know, Madame Tussauds and Alton Towers, and it owned, uh, you know, it had a large stake in Lazard's Investment Bank, uh, it still had legacy investments in B- what was then B-Sky-B and satellite broadcasters. Uh, it owned a whole sort of range of different different activities. Uh, actually, I've still got a... One of my leaving presents when I left Paragem was a, is a poster I've still got on the wall at home, which had in the, uh, the day that there was an article by Ed Wallace, my then boss at Paragen, around the why electricity regulation was failing, which I had ghostwritten for him. Directly next to it was a picture of Marjorie Scardino with Pamela Anderson because it was the same day (laughs) that Pearson had just bought All-American TV and there was a little bubble coming out of Ed Wallace's mouth which it looked like he was looking over at Marjorie Scardino saying, I can't see what John finds so attractive about yeah. Pearson. <laughs> uh, so those were the, uh, those were the, you know, those were the, those were the days. So in those days, Pearson still owned a whole cross-section of different companies. Uh, and did that excite you at that point, that there was all that kind of breadth of, of stuff? Or did you already think yourself that it, there was going to be some rationalisation? There was obviously going to be some rationalisation, but it was interesting at the time because it was the last, in some ways, of the old-style sort of conglomerates. And my, first three, my first three years at Pearson were really... It was like running your own in-house financial PR agency because virtually every week we were buying or selling something. And essentially what happened was we were in a whole range of different sectors and we were, you know, a poor number two or three or four in lots of different businesses. And we looked at it, and Marjorie particularly looked at it and said, well, where do we have, you know, where could we be, have aspirations to global leadership? And it was a time when people were really starting to think about the knowledge economy and that education would start to emerge as an industry and a sector in the way that nobody thought about it previously. And so by selling our stakes in Pearson Television and Lazards and Biscay B and the like, we funded the acquisitions of the businesses that have formed the modern-day Pearson, and we went from being a, essentially a media conglomerate, a small, relatively small media conglomerate, to being the, the largest education and learning company in the world. 
And what was your relationship with Marjorie like at the time? How close were you? And, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I look after a lot of chief execs myself. That's my job. And to, to some extent, I'm asked what are ostensibly media questions, but actually often they're not. I, I get... I'm very flattered to be asked quite profound business questions, and sometimes it's a bit like the tail wagging the dog. Did you ever feel that it was a bit like that at that stage? That you? No, were... I mean, I think that um, Margie was a you know instinctively a very very good natural communicator. Had a really nice sort of style, incredibly uh, well respected. But it actually, it was sort of you know trying to work and find her voice, and uh, worked a lot around the values and the culture of the company. So we actually did a lot of work around the sort of internal communications. And it was always instinctive and non-corporate, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So the like the vision statement or the value statement of Pearson was, at the time, three words. It was brave, imaginative, and decent. And that all came about because Marjorie went and made a speech at a national sales meeting in America and she said the three things I aspire the company to be are brave, imaginative and decent. Didn't really think a lot about it. And the next thing you knew, things started appearing which people had produced organically that had brave, imaginative and decent. So there was clearly a real demand for, you know... And I think those are the... You know, people say you build the brand from the inside out. Mm. I think that was a great example of, of that. So, um, yeah, it, so I, I think I think the other thing about Pearson, it was a company. I think the other thing it's like right through back from the sort of again the sort of buccaneering spirit of the Pearson family because Marjorie was the first non-member of the Pearson family to be the CEO. It was always people can be allowed to try different things and to reinvent themselves, and so that was the other thing that I think was. Um, appealing about the company and which was hugely beneficial from my point of view was having been the corporate you know having run communications for three years and doing all this uh having made these two big acquisitions in america it was you go to north america as president of pearson inc go to new york and help us set up the corporate presence which then gave me a much wider range of experiences that must have been an incredibly exciting time and what an amazing opportunity it was. Uh, it was a great experience for my family because my kids were young at the time as well. Uh, it was. I mean, it was not without its challenges because it was the time of the dot-com boom mm. and then the dot-com bust. Yes. So, uh, you know, when I when I went to America, the Pearson share price was over, was over £20 and by the time I came back, it was barely £5. So we'd had this huge boom and bust. So it was a very challenging time for the company. Uh, it was the time of 9-11. Yeah. Uh, when I sat in my office in New York, uh, as that happened, knowing that we had 150 people working in the World Trade Center. So you were in Manhattan so during I was, I was in Manhattan up in uh, up on... Six, my office was on 6th Avenue and 54th Street. Oh, so it's well, a mid-town. Well, so well away from where, where but all close the challenges were. close enough to see it. And... Yeah, but more than that, it was about trying to... Tr- you know, you're trying to chase down... 150 people and make sure they're all okay, which fortunately they were. Thank goodness. Uh, but it was a sort of, you know, I think for anyone who was there on the day, it was a very sort of, um, it was an experience that you never forget. But clearly, given that there was a kind of drop in share price, you've obviously did a good job because in terms of mitigating the loss, it might have been a lot worse, but for the fact that you were there. Um, I think it was, a you know, a lot of people were were, were sort of involved. Um, it was partly then... Uh, I was still running corporate affairs. Uh, I'd hired a guy called Luke Swanson, 
to be my number two to to run the things from London whilst I moved to New York. Uh, I was ready to move back to London for personal reasons. Uh, Luke was doing a fantastic job, so it was time for me to step out and let him take on the role. So what was I going to do next? Um, and again, there's an opportunity to do very different things in Pearson. Um, but actually, a guy called Peter Ivanovich, who ran the education businesses, reporting to Marjorie at the time, uh, asked me, did I want to go and run Europe, Middle East and, and Africa for, for Pearson, the education business? From and here in London? From, from Well, basically, from actually from Harlow in, in Essex. Yeah. So I swapped my corner office on 6th Avenue with this fantastic view down Midtown for uh, an office in Harlow overlooking the canal and the train line from Stansted into London. Oh, the canal sounds London. quite nice, actually, but uh, the, the train but line it was, But more than that, I actually went from being... Uh, I went from a job where I was reporting direct to the CEO and was on the executive management committee to... Uh, I didn't actually report to Peter. I reported to someone who reported into... Peter so I went you know so I actually got quite a lot of emails at the time from people asking me you know was I okay because it looked like I'd taken quite a big demotion but I didn't see it that way and it certainly certainly cost me financially in the short term because the financial package I was on was was different um but it was a chance to run my own P&L yeah. and it was a chance You're to autonomous. yeah but also the chance to find out whether I was any good at you know, working with a group of people, uh, getting involved in selling, marketing, product development, sort of opening up new markets and the like. And, was that um, a slightly scary time then? Because it was, like you say, you had P&L responsibility for the first time. You couldn't blame anyone else but yourself. No, uh, I, mean, I, I guess you've got to have a degree of self-confidence or maybe even naivety to, to do it. Or, or arrogance, uh, I would say, my part, anyway. Um, <laughs> I think what I realised was, I think having come from the sort of background I've done, I think anyone who's worked in any sort of journalism or communications or corporate affairs role, you get used to asking a lot of questions and you're not frightened of asking the questions that maybe everyone else in the room wants to ask. Clive James had this famous saying where he said on you know he, on TV quite a lot of people accused him of asking the obvious question. He liked to think that some of the obvious questions he asked weren't so obvious until he asked them. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think there's a, I think there's an element of that. So I think that that ability then to uh, actually to be willing to to question and challenge to be a bit contrarian to absorb lots of information from different people and try to synthesize and and bring that into a clear narrative and story that's sort of my modus operandi I think sometimes it sort of drives some of the people I work with mad but it sort of works for me I think it is a good way sometimes of, of getting at the, the truth of an issue sort of nagging away at it and coming at it from lots of different angles you know you sort of there's something to be said that if you don't feel you can explain something clearly and simply to somebody then it's probably not a good idea I think back when I've made my biggest mistakes it's been where we've made investments in things that with hindsight I wasn't as clear as to what or why we were doing it and it wasn't as compelling as it should have been my accountant always says to me that you can work any business out on the back of a fag packet and if you can't 
then you're in trouble straight away. And I think he's right. You know, there's money coming in, money going out. What's your profit? What's your cash flow? Well, What's it's not your a, margin? Yeah. <laughs> not a fag packet these days for obvious no. reasons. But, uh, but, uh, but to reduce but it in, to a in simple that, in concept. That sense, I think it's sort of, it is, um, I can't remember which Dickens novel it is, but, you know, the definition of profit is something like, you know, um, Revenue twenty shillings, expenses twenty shillings and sixpence. Misery. Yeah, that's you know, it. Yeah, another revenues one. twenty shillings, uh, expenses nineteen shillings and sixpence. Happiness. You know, it is sometimes you do have to think of it in fairly clear, simple terms. We do we do overcomplicate things. And it's interesting because this is the first point in your career. You've got full P and L responsibility. Lots of businesses are very sound, but that you know they might be losing money or for whatever reason underperforming. And there's just three or four very simple things that need to be changed and dealt with, where you can then take advantage to fulfil the potential. Is that where you felt you were at this point? Then what, what was what was top of your to do list then? Well, I was in the position where this was a this was about I guess at the time about a. Two hundred million pounds in annual sales, but we weren't really making any. There wasn't. We weren't making any profit. The business had been through challenging times. It had been big in computer publishing, which had boomed and bust on the back of the the dot com boom and bust. To be honest, timing was a little bit of it. So actually, some of the hard work had already been done when I Great. when I when I got there. So and there's some really smart people. I managed to persuade a couple of key people who remain colleagues to my day, who was whose noses were somewhat put out of joint by my appointment arrival, who thought, yeah. who thought they should have got the job and were halfway out of the door to stay, and that was fantastic because they were real talent. Um, but credit to you for actually I managing think, to persuade them to stay, given you know that they they rightly yeah. maybe felt their nose out of joint. Not yeah. that that was your fault. Yeah, no, exactly. But I think it's then you know a real trying to build a real sales-driven culture. So, you know, I made sure for the first time that we actually got a daily sales that everybody saw and that everybody knew that I saw. And if there was something that I was worried about by 9 o'clock in the morning, they knew, they, I was they like, knew, it as they, well. they knew I'd be on the phone and I'd want to know what was going on and I'd be very nice and polite about it. But I think so, actually, that got a focus. I'm really just focusing on costs and profit and driving the business. And really then also spend a lot of time with people a lot of time celebrating success and then over time you know we started to make a few acquisitions the first acquisition we ever made uh, was actually we bought a family owned company in Italy which was not the most obvious place to go but to this day remains a very successful and profitable part of Pearson really proud of that we were true to the commitments we made to the family and they've been an incredibly important part of Pearson and looking forward to going out and seeing them again, actually, in, the, in a few weeks' time. Would um, you rather be in Italy than staring at that train train track uh, in Hounslow? No, well, I mean, it was sort of... Um, it was actually really important because what... You know, because I had been so much at the centre and because I was so much seen as someone who'd worked very closely with Marjorie, that degree of separation, because in many ways... It was important. Harlow was further from London than New York was. In, yeah, in, in terms it, of yeah. the Pearson, in terms of the Pearson culture and the yes. way it was, it's, it absolutely was. So I sort of basically disappeared from, from corporate the, from the corporate circle. view for sort of three years, and then popped back up again three years later when 
by which point we had a £400 million business that was making 15% margin. So, you know, I mean, it was like sort of, you know, show, not tell. You know, it was it was get get the business in a better shape and then start to re-emerge on the... And, that, and that's, it I think that's something that, you know, I would, you know I'd say that for people who, who think about, you know, I quite often get asked this, people are thinking about similar sort of career trajectory or times I've done these, that's the hardest thing to do if you really want to go and prove yourself running the P&L having had a corporate role I do think you've got to be willing to take what may at first appear several steps back and you do have to earn the right to, to reinvent yourself if that makes sense or to, absolutely to and what is it you did to turn it around I mean just in terms of actual brass tacks you talked about culture change uh, you mentioned the, the the daily sales email is that a kind of manifestation as, of a deeper commitment to profitability what were yeah, the I think things a real, that you a did real, real focus on winning so being very competitive uh, I had the benefit of through my time in Pearson in the other role I, I was very well networked across the company so I was able to get a lot of help support advice so I'd never published a book in my life but I knew some of the very best publishers in the company so I'd get them I'd, I'd sort of bounce problems off them what do you think what can you do and you can help and more than that I'd get the teams in Harlow to have the chance to begin benefit from that scale and insight and expertise that they wouldn't otherwise have had built a good team I mean, the single most important thing was getting really getting the right people. smart. Yeah, and you know, and actually, they were some of the um, some of the very sort of happiest times in my life because I mean, that that size of business actually is one that it's sort of big enough that you feel it matters, but it's small enough that you can actually feel that you can directly engage with every part of it. And we built a real uh, camaraderie and spirit that I think was really important. So, what came next then? Well, essentially, I did. I, I essentially did variations of that job for the best part of 10 years. So over time... Were you the troubleshooter? No, well, it grew. Yeah, well, to some extent it grew. So I, you know, uh, Europe, Middle East and Africa became much, became bigger, partly through organic growth and partly through some of the acquisitions that we made. Because of, I was seen to have done a good job, I took on Asia Pacific and then in time Latin America. So I basically took on all the education businesses outside of outside of, of North America. Were you travelling a lot? I mean, that's a, that's uh, so a big geographical commitment. About, yeah, I mean, by the time I finished, by the time I, I, so, so I stopped in that role really late 2012 when I became CEO of Pearson, by then it was a sort of one and a half billion pound business. So we'd gone from a few hundred, you know, a few hundred million to, to one and a half billion. So I've been able to grow in that role. I travelled all the time. So, I mean, I was... So you spent yeah. your career in an executive airport lounge. Well, not always very waiting. executive, yeah. you know, because a lot of my travel was, you know, across across sub-Saharan Africa to all sorts of places in uh, across Asia. But that sounds uh, like an incredible adventure, actually. Did you enjoy it? It was. It was hard work. I mean, and the, the travelling was tough and it meant a long time away from, from, family. Quite, from quite a young yeah. family. I have that um, issue myself. But it was... Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, it was. And it was a, it, it was a really interesting and, and exciting um, time. And then I... Late... What was it? Late 2009. So I guess I've been doing the job about sort of uh, six or seven years. I was... I got... I was in... South Africa one, and I woke up one morning shaving and felt I had a little lump in my neck so I went to see a doctor and I came back and she gave me a course of antibiotics and said but you've got to come back next Friday I said well I can't come back next Friday because I'll be in Beijing she said well you 
if you, the lump's still there, you've got to come and see me as soon as you get back from, from Beijing, which I, I did. Unfortunately, she was a very, very smart GP. She immediately referred me to a specialist, and it turned out I had a um, secondary tumour in my throat. So I had throat cancer, which gives me some new... Hence my exception to you talking about fag packets, because I've never mm. really smoked a cigarette in my life. Uh, neither, neither have I. And so I went through, I went through sort of, uh, you know, uh, seven or eight months of pretty intensive treatment, a couple of pieces of surgery. Um, they caught it early, though, didn't they? Caught, they caught it. They caught it early enough. I mean, I, I, I had a primary tumor, so I went through quite a lot of treatment, and I. Um, I managed to carry on working, but wow. I wasn't doing any travelling. I had a fantastic team who really took on a lot, a lot, a big, a big lift. Really, really good team, great CFO, really good colleagues who who did it. And then really spent seriously some time thinking, do I actually want to go back to doing this or not? Because it's almost like a cliched question, isn't it? But you know, did it bring your life into focus having such a you know fundamental health scare like that? Yeah, I mean, it was quite interesting because there were points in it when I thought, well, you know, life will never be this... You know, I'll never, ever want to go back to that life again. And I have sometimes asked myself whether it was a um, lack of imagination of anything more interesting to do. That meant I did... I mean, I did go back to it, but I did... I did That's why I do my job. I did choose to go back to it, but I did go back to it, I think, with a, a different perspective, uh, which I think, you know, and my experience is not unusual most people go you know whether it's a serious illness or a divorce or it's most people have a have a moment like that in their life which causes them to a kind of moment of clarity to, to focus clarity about what's what's important to them about who they are and, and what they what they aspire to and i do remember you know a phrase i you know i mean because in my time as ceo person going through some pretty tough difficult times and and the phrase i always use is it's not what happens to you in life that matters. It's what you do about what yeah. happens to you that that counts. You can't control that, the card. You, uh, so I think you can't. So that exactly, it's the you, you can't know, control the cards you dealt, but you can control the way they're played. Yeah, and the uh, you know, and then a, someone who subsequently become a good friend of mine introduced me to the John Lennon quote that you know, life is what happens to you when you're making other plans. You making other plans. You know, yeah, and, that, and like you sort of have to, you know, so you do just have to sort of get on with it. So I think it gives a. A different sort of perspective. It certainly gave me a uh, a different perspective on life. And and in one sense, though, clearly it's terrible that it happened. Did the the kind of refocusing that it prompted make you like better and happier over more overall? So not that you were glad it happened, clearly, but that it 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 forced a kind of rethinking which has benefited you. I'd like to think it's given me a perspective. And a sort of, uh, you know, and a, uh, a sort of grounded me and made me better able to deal, you know, because I think previously I was very, very sort of angst-ridden by everything. My family and closest friends would probably say it's not changed me as much as it should have done. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it probably all depends on your, uh, it probably all depends on your sort of perspective on life, you know. Has it made you a better leader? I hope it's made me more conscious of the need to try and stand in the shoes of others and, and see life from others' um, perspectives. And I hope it's given me, uh, you know, an ability to to say that actually there are, you know, times in life when things are just going to be very difficult and tough and you just have to try and make what you believe are the best 
long-term decisions for the future, in, in, in my case, for the future of Pearson or, or whatever it might be, and shut out everything else. Not be not be arrogant, so you're not listening and not taking perspective of criticism. And, but and for still, example, in the, the power of focus. Person, I've, I've got some big things wrong, and, and I, I sort of acknowledge that and, and reflect on it. But it, you do have to have a confidence to say, I can't let myself be overly influenced by the noise and the criticism I've got to try and say what do I actually believe is in the best long-term interest of the company and just get on and see it through and know that, you know, in time that will seem to be the right course, but it may take longer than you'd like. So uh, when I came into your office, it was the CEO's office and it's quite a big chair. How did you end up sitting in that chair then? Tell us how that, that leap was made. Um, I, I'm probably not best, you know, I wasn't on the Pearson board. I wasn't part of the, the decision-making, you know, I was... As part of the succession process, I guess it was sort of around about the time actually I'd been ill was when there was a the first conversation around was I sort of interested in being considered a successor. And at the time, I wasn't sure it was for me, partly because I because of the experience I'd been through, partly because um, I knew that for all the success that Pearson had had over the last previous 15 years, this was a heavy lifting. You know, this was a heavy lifting. There were some tough decisions and to make. It, and it was going to be, and that Marjorie was going to be a very, very hard act to follow. And there were some tough times and that we'd benefited from some pretty favourable market environment that were likely to go against us. Um, I didn't see it being quite as hard as it, as it has been. Um uh, but I, you know, uh, so I don't, so, you know, I'm not the best, you know, so a process by which the board said to me, would I be interested in, in taking on the role? And uh, ultimately, I was sort of humbled and all, you know, I mean, I mean, I can't, you know, everyone in my position uses the phrase humbled. It's genuinely uh, humbling. But in my case, you know, I, you know, I, you know, kid growing up in, you know, a sort of fairly normal middle class household. My dad was a school teacher in North Manchester in, in the late seventies, never had any real sort of knowledge or insight, didn't know anybody who worked really in business. You know, it never occurred to me that I ended up as CEO of a FTSE one hundred company. So you try to just surround yourself with really, really good people, take advice from as wide a range of people as you possibly can and stay true to the principle of on the basis of everything that I know if I'm trying to justify this to other people does what I'm proposing to do sound like does it stack up the sensible rational thing um, to do so what was on your to-do list then you're sitting in the CEO's chair it's day one what was on the to-do list Um, so I think the education like every other sector and sphere of life is being sort of the most overused word in the current vernacular, disrupted in inverted commas. You can see it in health, you can see it in journalism, you can see it in trade publishing, you can see it in hotels and hospitality and taxes and transport and music and, you know, Almost wherever, everything. Where, where, yeah. finance, every, every sphere of life is being disrupted by technology in ways that are unpredictable and messy and play out at very different timescales. Of all the things on my to-do list, the single most important was to take 
what was a great collection of assets, but which had in Pearson that were related to education, but which had been acquired by buying lots of different companies in different parts of the world and different cities working on different platforms and with different business models and try and make the whole worth more than the sum of the parts and try to sort of ensure that if there's going to be a digital winner in education as there will be in every other sphere of life, Pearson emerges as the digital winner that does so in a way that's true to our values, being brave, decent, imaginative and accountable for what we do each day and that does so in a very innovative, creative, uh, fleet-footed way but actually gets real benefits of scale from being really focused on the very best content in the world. There's a reason why I've got a first edition of Dr. Dr. Johnson's Dictionary. It's amazing, Dictionary of English Language, as published by Thomas Longman, which remains a Pearson imprint to this day, and others. It's a reminder of academic rigour and excellence, hugely innovative in its day from a publishing perspective, you know, made necessary by the fact that suddenly a lot more people, at the time that dictionary was published, suddenly a lot more people were literate, made possible by technology, huge advances in the day in printing and book binding and the like. And that remains true to the day, the intellectual rigour, quality of content, commitment to excellence, publishing at the very best still matters, but reinvented for a the technology changes and advantages that are made possible by the world in which we live in today. I just find it impossible to see that dictionary and not think of the Blackadder episode well, where, so, where him and Baldrick um, spent ages trying to define the word Avvac. It was knowing that we then had to be completely focused on education. Um, so how the, do we find the right homes for two sort of or three iconic British brands that were never going to be part of the education business. And so there was a disposal element there, wasn't it? So there was the, the Financial Times that we own and the Economist that we were 50% shareholders in, and there was also Penguin. Um, so it, Marjorie, Marjorie and other colleagues, John Makinson and others, helped resolve the Penguin issue because we, uh, just before, just shortly after my announcement of my appointment, we announced that we were combining... Penguin with Random House, which is owned by Bertelsmann, to create the world's leading trade publishing company, which provided uh, an ability to secure the editorial excellence and publishing craft of Penguin, whilst bring real benefits of scale, economies, cost savings and the like, which is going to be really important in a world where Amazon and the like were going to be much more powerful players, and we needed to be stronger to match that. Um, And then there was a challenge with both the FT and The Economist, which became clear over time that it too faced its huge disruption in journalism. Uh, Just look what's happened to to newspaper advertising. Look at the power that people like Google and Facebook have. Uh, And that, you know, as great a brand as the FT is, it was a... Three hundred million pound niche business, business, niche business, and we could not do justice to the FT and help it to really deal with its big challenges, whilst also be completely focused on winning in in digital learning as well. So the trick was, how do you maximise the value of that brand from a Pearson point of view, 
whilst finding a home for the FT that is going to be respectful of its journalism. And well, I think we managed, you know, I believe managed both. we managed to do both. Because without being overly pompous about it, you know, you've got a duty to your shareholders and you want to maximise the actual value of the sale, but you've also got to uh, got to be mindful, surely, that the FT is an iconic brand that, as a citizen of the country, it's important that we have robust financial journalism and whoever's going to acquire it needs to be, uh, you know, aligned with those kind of values yeah. of truth and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, my argument was always that just selling the FT to the highest bidder might maximise shareholder value from a short-term point of view, but if that bidder then ran the FT subsequently in a irresponsible way, in the way that you described, then that would be undermine the reputation of Pearson and would be damaging to Pearson in the broader sense over over time. Nikkei uh, seem to be doing a very good... They, they very are. I mean, job. I think the... Um, it was quite interesting because the other big debate we had at the time was... Should there be some uh, trust set up, or should we? Should there be some charter that I demanded the new owner sign, sign up, up to? to? And my view is that culture beats rules every day. Mm. And if the owner was someone that you were sufficiently nervous about, that you felt they needed to be overseen by a trust or that you needed to write some charter for them, then you probably shouldn't be selling the business to them in the first place. And that actually a much better means of doing it was did you have confidence that these were people who shared your commitment to journalist independence and integrity and would they be true to the editorial mission and that they have a real cultural alignment and incentive with the values of the FT and I think you know back to my show not tell theme the only way to judge that is read the printed version of the FT or FT.com every day I think you'd have to say that certainly so far, 18 months on, um, that's proved to have been the right call. But you can measure certain things about the acquirer, like their financial performance and their cash reserves and all of that. But, you know, as you were saying there, culture beats rules. How do you, as CEO of Pearson, disposing of a very significant, very prestigious brand, how do you make those inherently subjective assessments about their culture and their intention? Do you, is, you know, I, I don't know anything about this, but did you take the kind of CEO out for a meal or do you sit there in a, you know, in a high back chair for three hours and talk about the world, you know? Because, I mean, actually, you do need to do a deep dive on their, what, what drives them culturally we had got to know Nikkei over a number of years because we'd had a uh, partnership relationship with them uh, so we'd work with them in a range of things I canvassed the views extensively of editorial and commercial colleagues in the FT and then I talked quite a lot with with the uh, you know with the, the, the leading folks at, at, at Nikkei what was interesting, I mean, I always thought that Nikkei would be a good owner from an editorial and cultural point of view. My, my concern was whether they'd actually be able to meet our value expectations and fair play to them. You know, we sold a business that was, what, making 20-odd million pounds of profit at the time for £844 million. Pounds. So I think by any stretch of the imagination, we achieved good value from a shareholder point of view. Uh, but I think we've also found an owner that in which the FT is in, in safe hands and it proves the global nature. I think it also helped the fact that they are a journalist-led organisation. What's on your to-do list currently? 
Um, well, I mean, you only have to take a look at the Pearson share price and what's happened to the uh, sales and profits of the company over the last couple of years to know that we're going through a very difficult time. One is a uh, just a point that where we are in the economic cycle. So uh, slightly perversely, our biggest business, which is in U.S. higher education, enrollments go up when the economy is struggling or in the early days of recession and enrollments come down when the economy is doing well. So there's a counter-cyclical element that we suffer from. But the bigger challenge is the digital disruption that's happening in our textbook business um you know and the big lesson there is however many questions i asked and however hard we tried we actually missed a big trend uh and i think it shows you how uncertain digital plays out so everybody was focused on the threat of sort of open education resources so this was people giving away content for free because that's what had hurt you know that's what's been the big disruptive threat in journalism and in music. It's and, clearly and, unsustainable and, uh, in, in other areas, but but causes a challenge in the, in the short term. Yeah, because you, you, so you have far, to sell stuff that other people are giving away for free. Yeah, and that so far has been the, the the sort of if you like the you know that has proved manageable. That's not yet, at least, proved to be a major disruptive threat. What we didn't see was that actually what would happen is that folks like Amazon would take a market, a secondary market that had long existed. So basically our textbooks have a three-year editorial life. Most students need them at most for a year. Some of them only need them for half a year because they do two semester courses. And so the students would buy the books back to the campus bookstore at the end of the year and then some of them would get resold. What Amazon do is they buy the books new from us and then rent them six times over a three-year Life cycle. Incredible. It sounds very sort of mundane in a way, and it's a business that had been a sort of a type of practice that had been going for ten years. But not years. to this scale. This is but a game suddenly changer. It hit us, and we didn't, and we were we were slow to see it. So that was by far the biggest and most profitable part of the business, and shone a light on the fact that some other parts of Pearson were not making as much money as they should, and shone a light on the fact that, with hindsight, we were trying to do too many different things in education all at once. And so we've now really focused and said what we are, we think we're the world's best at creating education-related content. We're the world's best at creating assessment and qualifications and measuring and assessing a student's progress. And if we combine those two things with the digital transformation and build services around them, we can help teachers to be more successful and more productive in their teaching and we can help their students to be more successful and more likely to go on and have a, a better job and so we're sort of simplifying the company we've got more work to do to reduce the cost base and we've really got to accelerate the digital transformation and make sure that we see learning personalized in much in the way that healthcare or banking or any other sphere of life is capable of working much better for individuals What's a typical week for you? Where do you, where are you actually spending your time? What areas of the business? There isn't really a typical week for me, so uh, it depends on where you are in, you know, where we are in the year. <laughs> so, for example, this is my uh, first week back in the office in in three weeks. So I spent, you know, we had our financial results about three weeks ago. So I spent a week on the road in mainly around the city of London, just doing 
sort of six or seven one-to-one shareholder meetings a day for a week. And then I spent two weeks on the road in the US trying to get to the Pearson locations where we have more than a few hundred people that I wouldn't normally get to. So I started in, so I was in Orlando, Baltimore, uh, Toronto, Bloomington, Minnesota, Cedar Rapids and Iowa, San Antonio and Austin in about eight days. So that was a pretty sort of intensive. Then I'm back in the office this week doing stuff like this and a lot of uh, more, if you like, sort of normal meetings, email, catching up with stuff, checking up on various initiatives and progress projects that we've got on the go. And then I'm back out for a week. I've not been to, to South Africa for about a year, so I'm going to spend about a week in South Africa doing something similar to what I did in sort of North America. So I'd probably spend about two weeks a month thereabouts, certainly a week to two weeks a month sort of on the road somewhere uh, and that'll be a mixture of doing you know meeting with staff meeting with customers uh, doing deep dives into businesses and looking at opportunities and the like uh, and two weeks sort of really working out of the London office we often find on our kind of metrics of this podcast that whenever the CEO appears on it, that a lot of the domain names that are the, the listeners, the new listeners, are actually match the same domain as the interviewee. And what we find is is that hundreds of their own staff listen to their CEO because they think, wow, the CEO's there for an hour. Let's you know find out what he or she's got to say. And I'm quite flattered by that because it is a good opportunity to do so. Well, what? just on that, I mean, I... Uh... I'm not sure you'll see that in this case. I think probably people are fed up of hearing from me. Uh, I think Maybe it is, though. I do, I, but it is something that I did see over the last couple of weeks is that, is that you know, we use a lot of social media. We do a lot of sort of internal global conversations where we use various different platforms, to, you know, because we're, you know, 35,000 people literally in every country so around the world. It's very hard to sort of reach people. And those are really important, and we'll do more and more of them. But there's actually nothing like physically somebody being in the same space and seeing you and hearing you. You know, it's why are more people going to live music events? Why are more why are book fairs of all things more pop? You know, getting popularity. That we, did, we, did, we are humans are, innate, are innately social creatures, and we need to see and touch and feel and look in the eye as well. I think one of the things that I enjoy about this podcast and, and, you know, is responsible for a tiny bit of our moderate success is we have never, ever done a telephone interview for this. It's mm. always been face-to-face because it is just a better conversation. It's easy to give the spiel, um, you know, when you're down the line. I do it. Yeah. But actually that face-to-face is, is incredibly important. So just a few final questions then, actually. Just building on what you said earlier there is, in terms of your personal opinion, what are the bits about your job now that you enjoy and what are the bits that you find challenging? I mean, the honest thing is I find everything challenging and I do actually find pretty much everything enjoyable, even though it doesn't feel always enjoyable at the time. When I was ill, watching the famous uh, Steve Jobs commencement speech at, uh, at Stamford, I think it was. Shared very widely. And one of the one of the things he says there is that you know he would look in the mirror. You know, he'd get in the shower. He'd look in the mirror every morning, and he'd sort of say to himself, "Am I looking forward to what I'm going to be doing today?" 
and if uh, after more than a few days he wasn't looking forward to it then it was time to do something different and I think I you know when you you got you know a potentially challenging or difficult board meeting or you're having to do difficult financial results or you've got shareholders who are understandably concerned about what's happening in in the company you sort of do have to say to yourself well I've either got to look forward and enjoy and say this is what I am actively choosing to do Mm. the time I've got left on this place or it's time to stop and do something else so I don't really distinguish between do you know what I mean I think Mm. you I think you just have to and I think that's really important because I think then you give the best of yourself. But I also think that, again, you know, uh, maybe a lot of people say it, but certainly from a Pearson point of view, I, this is an incredibly special company uh, full of great people, but also really nice, good people. And so, you know, even in the most difficult of circumstances, um, I feel I'm learning something. You're surrounded by people who care about each other and are able to, you know, laugh appropriately and find sort of enjoyment and excitement even in the most difficult of times. I think that matters. Have you learned a lot about yourself as you've uh, increased your leadership role? I find that an incredibly hard question to... I'm glad you're answering it, not me. uh, ...answer because I think it's sort of... uh, I, I almost think it's the question for someone else to answer um you know it's the first time in this interview when i'm probably tempted to look to brendan colleague what? of mine who sat to the yeah. left and say brendan what do you think do you think so I've question any- one is what toast <laughs> yeah you know, <laughs> what, do you know what i mean because i don't I, I think that it's very hard i would obviously like to think so but it's a bit like you know um it, it, it's a bit like whenever somebody tells me they're really passionate about something yeah my answer is, well, I'll be the judge of that. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? I think it's. I don't think it's something you can. I think you've just got to get on with it. Yeah. And allow here. others to sort of make those judgments. So obviously, I would like to think I've learned a lot about myself, um, but maybe what I've learned is I don't know half as much as I thought I knew. You know. I mean, I, you know what I mean. I mean, that's that's just the nature of life. I think. Well, I, I, I'm just jealous of people who can be passionate about something. I work so hard that I've lost the ability to experience any form of emotion. I just go through the motions all the time. That's what I tell myself anyway. Yeah. I jest, of course. You have uh, exhibited <laughs> that that's clearly not true uh, in everything you've done in the last hour or so. Well, thank you very much. Last question then, I suppose, and it, and it is a deliberately softball question, but I want to end on a positive note. Is What is the thing that you've done at Pearson that's made you most proud? It's what we're doing now. Because growth and profits like history doesn't run in straight lines. And sometimes it's the things you do when things seem to be going least well and are actually the most important. And I think that the work we're doing now is going to set Pearson up for another prolonged period of growth and success that will hugely benefit our shareholders and everybody who works for the company, but also does something important because I think it will make better quality education more available to a wider number of people. In Baltimore the other week when it was International Women's Day and I told a story I've told before, which is that you know I've got two 
two daughters, both benefiting from university education, who going on having great and successful lives. And, uh, you know, my mother, oldest of seven kids, growing up in a pretty tough area of Manchester in the 1940s, plenty smart enough to go to university, left school because her mother needed to earn some money and help bring up her, her younger siblings. From my mother's generation to my daughter's generation, that's the transformational power of great education. And our opportunity at Pearson is to create value for our shareholders by bringing the benefits of great teaching and learning to more people through the power of technology. That is an incredibly powerful thing to do. And I think we are making hard, tough, difficult decisions now that give us the best chance of delivering on that and staying true to the sort of pioneering entrepreneurial spirit that has driven Pearson since it was formed in 1844 and that we can be in a very different industry in a very different sector, but we can still be true to the values of how you go about business, which is with a bit of flair and a bit of personality and a bit of compassion, but with a lot of grit and determination and discipline as well. Okay, last, last question then. You mentioned about your daughters there. Let's say one of them wanted to become the next CEO of Pearson 20, 30 years from now. What advice would would you give her? And, and do you think young people starting out in their careers today in, in many ways have it easier, but in other ways have it much harder? I think they. I think they, I think in one important sense they... Uh, you know, they really do have it harder. For I think this whole generation has it harder. I think you know, I'm the I'm at the the younger end of the baby boom generation, and whether you know, certainly in the UK, whether it's in terms of you know property, pensions, the overall state of the public finances, and the like. Game I over. think young people have a good reason to feel that there's a, a generational divide that doesn't quite work. Everyone's got to find their own way and everyone's got to do it. So I, I, in one sense, to thine own self be true is the most important thing. But actually, I would say I never set out. I didn't say, you know, I want to be the CEO, of, you know, as we discussed earlier. I, that was never my career ambition. Global domination was it never was, the only It was sort of, um, you know, again, love what you do and do what you love. So uh, work out what it is that you really enjoy doing as, a, as an individual. There's a S- Springsteen lyric that goes something like, you know, you spend a long time, my friend, living in your own skin not to stand the company. And you're not going to stand your own company if you're not doing something that you really get a kick out of doing. And in, in my case, initially, it was journalism and politics that really got me going. And then in time, I actually realised, actually, I really like running businesses and helping things to grow and seeing if we can beat the competition and grow. And And, and, that, and that came in time. And so it's... Sort of if you so be ambitious for what you do and the experiences you have, and everything else will follow rather than be overly obsessed with the role and the status. Again, easy thing for me to say from where I am today, but I do think that's an important part of it. John, it's been a hugely enjoyable time with you. Thank you ever so much, and uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Nice to talk to you. 
A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!